0: friends, Greg Kokel here at Stand to Reason, and uh, I appreciate you being part of our show today, and uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. If you'd like to call in, 855 243 That's our number. you got to call when I'm on the air. That would be Tuesdays from 4 until 6 p.m. All right, so we got two hours of interaction here, not just these two hours, uh, which you guys get one hour a piece. Wednesday it goes out, or Friday for the second. But you, uh, unless you're watching live streaming, which you're welcome to do from our website, um, and um, but we also have two other that go out on the other days, like what Thursday. When do, I'm, I'm looking at Amy. She's looking. What are you asking here? I'm trying to figure out when our uh, what's the program we do together? Hashtag STRS. When does that go out? Mondays and Thursdays. So that. Uh except for Tuesdays, every day of the week, you get something from us if you want to sign up, but uh, that's the uh, show with Amy and I, and she's the showcase there, because she adds so much to what I offer in response to your questions, so anyway, those things coming up. Hey, I wanted to keep you posted on what's happening for reality, and um, it's another 10 days, about, till Southern Cal kicks off the season. Uh, right now, we have 1,862 signups. That means we have 138 spots left in the main auditorium in the next 10 days. They're going to go. And then we have 200 more left for overflow. Okay. So that's what we're looking at. I think I gave bigger numbers in the past, uh, but for overflow right now, we're looking at 200. That's it. So if you have not signed up, go to realityapologetics.com and uh, take a look at the lineup, which is a fabulous lineup we do every year. I don't have all the names right in front of me here, but you guys have been going to reality. We have fabulous speakers addressing issues that are geared for young people. When I say young, I mean like middle school and high school. And uh, we don't check IDs at the door, so old folk can come too, but it's really geared for them to prepare them to face the onslaught the challenge in the world to stand tall and to stand firm in the midst of the challenges. And this particular season, starting September, we have six of these events around the country, and this season we're focusing in on deconstruction and uh, deconversion. A lot of movement in that direction. In fact, people who have deconverted are evangelistic about it, and so they're raising lots of issues that need Answers, and we are dealing with those issues with answers during our conference season starting a week and a half at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. That would be September 23rd and 24th. We'll be a month later about in Seattle, October 14th and 15th. The following month in Minneapolis, November eleven and 12th. And then next year, February 24th and 25th in Dallas. We'll be in Philly, March 24th and 25th and Augusta, Georgia. April twenty first and twenty second. That's our lineup. So, uh, but the big one coming up here in Southern California. This is our. Um, th- this is the event that started. All of these, this whole series of six national events now, uh, that's our flagship enterprise, the Orange County one, the Southern California one, and that will be coming up in a little more than a week. And uh, seats are going quickly. So please, if you've been thinking about signing up, uh, don't think, do, (laughs) because uh, we can only take so many, and then we'll be sold out. And last year, we sold out. Um, This year, we're going to have a much better circumstance than we had last year. Because we have no restrictions by the state, that was a big headache for everybody. we were, did our best to work around it, but this year we don't have any of that kind of thing so uh I'm looking forward to that uh also want to let you know this hour, not next, that tomorrow Wednesday, September fourteenth at twelve p m John Noyes is going to be live on Facebook and Twitter and youtube it says youtube p t I don't know why it says YouTube PT. That's a new terminology to me, but that's in my announcements. What is that? That must be, STRS YouTube, but YouTube, Amy, what's YouTube PT? That's what it says here for John Noyce tomorrow. No, she's looking at me quizzically like, what's that? No, I don't know. It just says YouTube. TP. Anyway, was the details you got, I don't know what the TP stands for or PT. <laughs> I do know what TP stands for. I don't know what PT stands for. Uh, In any event, he's going to be responding to an article by an ACLU director accusing Christianity of discriminating. I'm very interested to see what John has to say. Uh, I won't be able to watch it tomorrow because I have other broadcasts I'll be doing. But uh, you can hear what he has to say. And he's a thoughtful guy. Okay, so that's, uh, let's see, 12 p.m. Pacific time. Maybe that's what that means, YouTube PT Pacific Time. I guess that's what it means. And uh, by the way, <clears throat> given the accusation that Christianity discriminates, the answer is yes, of course, everyone discriminates. Everyone discriminates. They divide people into two groups, uh, and in moral in, in terms, those are the acceptables and the unacceptables. Everybody does that, all right? But the irony to me when—remember when the Boy Scout thing happened, and the Boy Scouts were the Boy Scouts, and then <clears throat> the accusation was because they had moral requirements for their for their uh, leadership that was discriminatory against gays. And since they were discrimi- discriminating against gays, they were not allowed to meet in certain facilities that was against discrimination. In other words, those organizations with their facilities discriminated against the Boy Scouts and said, you can't meet here because we don't like your ideas. All right? Point being, everybody discriminates. The question is whether the kind of discrimination that's being done is morally defensible, morally sound, and morally appropriate? That's the question, okay? Not just do they discriminate. This has become a crazy word. I don't know how uh, John is going to manage the information. I haven't talked to him about his, his uh, podcast tomorrow, but I'm sure you'll enjoy what he has to say. Uh, let's see. Also, there are two new standard reason uh, university courses that are coming up September 30th, that's in a couple of weeks. Uh, Robbie Lashua has is uh, put together a course on how to evaluate worldviews, and then uh, there was a, a corporate efforts from some of our guys uh, who are leading a course on who Jesus is. So that's all coming out just in a couple of weeks. Just thought I'd let you know. I had really interesting, fun, satisfying time at Baylor University a couple of days ago. Um, I met in the evening with uh, the Oso logos, which is like the bear logos bear word as in b e a r because bear is the mascot of the uh, of Baylor University. in fact, they have bears there. they actually have bears. I went by the bear cage. they have bears, apparently they lost one of their bears recently. it shuffled off its mortal coil. And went to where, you know, bare spirits go after they leave. But uh, so I guess it was a sad day for some over there. But I had a wonderful time with the um, with the groups. And uh, that was in the evening, the afternoon, though, at noon, lunchtime, I had a whole, an hour with the Christian Legal Society there. Uh, all law students, Christian, getting their law degree at Baylor. That's the paper chase. They're working hard, but they took an hour um, to sit in on a session where we had a Q&A. And uh, they did the queuing, and I did my best at the aing. I had a fabulous time there. I loved it. It was a smaller venue. I'd say there were 35, maybe, people there. It's one of those kind of roundish venues where you've got steps and desks going up and you sit in the middle right there and they're all kind of looking right down on you and they're all very close. There's no amplification needed. Um, it was personal. And it was personal in two different ways for me. It was personal in the sense I just described it. We're all close. But it was also personal because they were, it was clear to me. I mean, sometimes you can sense these things as a speaker. Your The sentiments of your audience, especially if it's smaller and you're closer to them. Are they with you or not? Are they on your side or not? Are they buying into what you're saying or not? And I felt like I had, in that regard, 100% participation. And that, of course, brings out the best in me. Because I feel relaxed, I feel comfortable, and I can speak from my heart extemporaneously on the issues that were brought up. And a lot of these issues that I talked about, because it was a QA, and I should say a question sheet that my host, Blake, had put together um, and, uh, and used as a kind of a platform to jump off of in doing this Q&A interaction. And uh, and there were some questions that had to do with God and good and evil and science and the like, but there are other questions that had to do with law. And um, I, I I guess understandably, the the first question that came up had to do with the problem of evil. Now I've been writing a lot about this. I have been writing about it for a long time, and uh, because it's a pressing challenge, and I think it presents some very significant positive opportunities for Christians to make their case for Christian theism. Um, I have said before I this will sound odd but I'll character I'll I'll explain my point. I love the problem of evil. I don't love evil. I love the problem of evil because that there is a problem of evil is what makes sense of the entire, Christian worldview. Our whole story, from beginning to end, is about the problem of evil. The reason we have a story is because of the problem that started, and the record of that is in Genesis 3, and it doesn't get solved to 66 books later. It it, it fits into our worldview. It's part of our story, and our story's not over yet. We're in the middle of the resolution of the problem of evil, so we have something to say to that. But it goes beyond that. That, there's a problem of evil, uh, uh, bears—let me back up and put it this way—fits hand in glove with our worldview, so there's a complete consistency of our worldview with the problem of evil. It isn't as if this is, oh my goodness, this kind of wrecks everything for us. We don't know what to do with this. I'll tell you who doesn't know what to do with the problem of evil. Atheists. Because the problem of evil, the way it's characteristically raised in discussion, makes no sense on a naturalistic worldview. How is it characteristically raised in discussion? Well, you know that. If your God is good and he's powerful, how how can there be so much evil in the world? Now what they're not doing is saying, within the context of your worldview, you seem to have a contradiction. They are pointing To the issue of contradiction, but not in a sense hermetically sealed within our worldview. It can be voiced that way, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying, you guys say God is powerful and good, but there is evil in the world. How does that work? How do you reconcile that? And so the complaint itself trades on an acknowledgement of real evil in the world. And <clears throat> that turns out not to be a theist's problem. It turns out to be a human problem, because everyone knows, no matter where they live or when they live, that there is something wrong with the world. Everybody knows that. That's why the, the challenge of the problem of evil is so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It comes up all the time, because something's wrong with the world. But as I pointed out before, and this is really the heart of the moral argument for God, there can't be something wrong with the world if there isn't a right way for the world to be. And there can't be a right way for the world to be unless someone establishes what that right way is. And when I say someone, it's got to be that someone that has the authority to declare how the world is supposed to be. And that ain't you and me. All right? And if you don't have someone declaring how the world is supposed to be, then you don't have any way the world is supposed to be. And if you have no way the world is supposed to be, and it can't now be the way it's not supposed to be, problem of evil. And therefore, it turns out, and I know I'm moving quickly for some of you who've not heard this before, but many of you have, so I'm just summing it up, because this is what I was telling the law students. It turns out that the problem of evil is an evidence for the existence of a good God who grounds morality and can declare what ought to be the case for humankind in the world, which humankind disobeys and therefore breaks. They break God's law, and in breaking God's law, they break the world, and they break themselves. So we have, a, we have a, an explanation for the fact of evil in the world. It fits in our worldview. We have an Rx because we can say, here's how to fix humans before we fix the world. If God fixes the world before he fixes humans, then humans are going to mess it up again. All right? First, he fixes us because we are the one who broke the world in the first place, then he fixes the world. That's the way our story works. Okay, that's the eschatological resolution of all this. At the end, it all gets fixed. We're in the middle now. acknowledge that. But but it also points out that um, there is no problem of evil unless morality is objective. Uh, If it's just a matter of personal preference, You know, one flavor, I don't like these things that are happening, it's wrong for me. Well, that's not good enough to ground the problem of evil. Why should anybody care what you like and you don't like, personally, preferentially, you know? One likes chocolate, another likes vanilla. Nobody's right or wrong about what they like, if that's the way morality is actually construed, subjectively. No, the problem of evil is only a problem if there's evil in the world. And if relatives is true, there's no evil in the world. But they got that. They're tracking with me. And fortunately, with a group like that, you got grad students, you got law students, you know, upper crust, I can move faster. I don't have to spell things out quite as carefully. They get it. But then at, at the end of our session, um, there was, uh, the, well, we had five minutes left. Then they got a break and go out to, to other classes. Maybe had eight minutes. I don't know. But I was saying, time for one more question was the question given to me. And I said, wait a minute. Let me just think. Do I want to answer another question, or do I want to make some closing remarks?" And I decided to simply make some closing remarks. And the closing remarks were were basically in light of the fact that I am speaking to a group of committed Christians who are developing a craft that has the capability to have a powerful impact for the cause of Christ. This was a leveraged group to whom I was speaking. And I wanted them to think about that. For one, that made my efforts that day feel much more um, significant. I'm spending time with a smaller group of people that I know it can have a gr- leveraged impact, and that makes it, it just it magnifies my own efforts in a certain sense. Um, and but I also wanted to to um. What's the right word here? I, I wanted to im. Im- not impose upon them, but I wanted them to get the gravity of their position, of their field of study, because law has such—and the the execution of of law um, has such a significant role in our society. It is the exercise of power. It is the exercise of power. Law is the exercise of power. Now, whether that power is exercised legitimately or not depends on one thing. Or at least, it, 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 this is necessary, it's not sufficient. It's more than one thing, but you got to have this thing. It depends on whether morality is objective or not. Now, Aristotle, I explained to them, and they maybe knew this, said famously that all law rests upon a necessary foundation of morality. That means when law is based on objective morality, the true good, then the law can reflect that, and the power is used for good purpose. I mean morally good purpose. When people use law without reference to the good, then the law, the power, is being used illicitly. It is for the benefit of the few that have the power. It isn't for the good of all. Good, again, in the moral sense. So, um, th- th- this, of course, is the difficulty if you have a culture that is committed, like ours is, to moral relativism. You do you. You figure out what's right for you, you get your own morality, you do your own thing. You make your own standards. Okay. If that's the way it is, first of all, there is no problem of evil, because all evil means is something happens, you don't like it. Right? And it also means that there is no foundation for law. There is nothing that governs the use of law. In other words, morally constrains it, because there's no moral there to do so. There are just individual preferences and points of view. And if you get the power, then you can use the power according to your purposes. You remember the phrase, we're going to speak truth to power. Speak truth to power. Now, I actually like the phrase in principle because it makes the distinction between the two. That power isn't all there is power needs to be subservient to truth. And by the way, that would have to be moral truth, uh, because the use of power has nothing to do with whether two plus two is four. It has to do with the appropriate exercise of force. And uh, so, speaking truth to power is a kind of a repetition of what I was saying a moment ago, that you have a foundation of moral truth, to which we call power accountable. But if you have no moral truth, of course, then it's just power. And I wrote about this last year in the Solid Ground, I think Primal Heresy, January, February, March, I think last year. Does that sound right, Amy? was March last year, Primal Heresy. It's the title of the piece, something like that. So you can check it at str.org and check look it look it up or find it on our, our app or something like that. It's worth reading because there I say one of two things are going to rule. Either truth or power. If truth is ruling, then then power is domesticated to truth. Truth puts a leash on the exercise of power. If there if not, then power has no leash. And, and and this is, when we live in a culture, even though human beings made in the image of God really are common-sense moral realists, they don't think of it that way, they don't campaign that way, they campaign, you do you, and me do me. It's all about the individual, it's all narcissistic, us getting our own way, and that's everywhere. Unless you're conservative, of course, then you shouldn't have your way or even have a voice. I mean, this is kind of the irony. Of this the the tolerance street is a one way street nevertheless if 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 that's what if that's what morality amounts to, then there's just nothing left but power and so my comment to these students are, you have to decide now today, figure it out whether morality is objective or not now, of course. The Christian worldview is clear on this. Morality is objective. But then the question comes up well, then what right does Christian morality have to impose on other people? So we have our objective morality, but what gives us the right to impose it on other people? I want you to think about that for a moment because now I'm talking in two different directions. If Christian morality is objectively true, then Christians aren't, aren't inventing their parochial view to illicitly impose on other people. Christians are, are perceiving reality accurately. It's the way the world is. Now we can explain why the world is that way. It's because God made it that way, and he is really the authority and grounding that is the foundation for morality. But we're not just imposing a parochial view. Our goal is to figure out what is actually true. And so, you know, why our view than someone else? We'll see that you're talking like a relativist. Like our view is just our personal thing, and they have their personal thing, and who's to say? Well, if no one's to say, now you're just back to power. And I think we know better. I think we know ultimately there is a right or wrong. The Nuremberg trials after World War II, those were based on the notion that there's a law above the law. And even though Nazis in the Third Reich were following their local Custom their law; they were still wrong, because there is a higher law. And if you're a Christian who is going into the law profession, we need you, but only if you understand that there is a higher law to which all culture is beholden, and and uh, and that law is grounded in the God. Who is morally good. And by the way, if the god who grounds the law is not morally good, then there is no goodness. It's the only answer for goodness. I know the atheists and the skeptics and the so-called free thinkers want to go to Darwin. Okay? Let them go to Darwin. What Darwin's going to give you is relativism. That's it. It cannot give you anything more. Biology cannot make any action bad. It can only make you, even in principle, believe actions are bad for the benefit of getting your genes into the next generation, but it cannot make any action objectively bad. All Darwinism is is another relativistic um, way of explaining the moral project in human beings. That's it. It's relativism. Now, it doesn't mean it's false. I think it is, but I just want you to see for what it is. Darwin is not going to get you objective morality, and if rel- if Darwinism is a true characterization of morality, if if they do the if they you're, you're right, well then there is no objective morality, and if there's no objective morality, there is no problem of evil. So bite the bullet. That's what you get. That's what follows. There are no other options. Oh, you can go to atheistic moral Platonism if you want, but it's not going to work. Bill Craig does a really good job of explaining that, but you got abstract moral properties. They can't command you to do anything. Abstracts are inert. Only persons can command and hold people accountable. If we have moral obligations that are objective, that's got to come from a personal source. Who himself or itself, if you will, I'm just... Try not to be the the kind of Christian theist here. I'm just saying this is where the this is where you end up somewhere where there is a personal being who has the grounding in his own nature, in that being's own nature. Am I trying too hard to be politically correct here? Can ground morality from his own nature? Well, then th- that makes sense. Not some abstract quality, but that's the only answer that's going to get you a grounding that is adequate. Okay, a grounding that is adequate. Now, I've been talking a bit, we'll take a break in a minute, but i and then go to some calls. Um, there, there's another detail here, and it was a question that was asked, should a judge as an agent of the state rule against a law because it goes against her personal beliefs? And if yes, isn't that a slippery slope? If not, how can you reconcile your faith and a professional vocation? Now, this is a very practical question. You're a Christian, you're adjudicating cases, you come upon an opportunity to adjudicate a law which law, based on your own convictions, is immoral do you then adjudicate according to your own convictions? And if you do, what's to keep everybody else from doing that? That's the slippery slope. And incidentally, it's not a slippery slope fallacy. It's a logical slippery slope. In other words, following the same logic, it will be justified for others to do the same thing according to their own personal code, whatever that happens to be. Now, of course, this is what we see everywhere. This is the problem. The The rule of law has deteriorated because jurists, judges, who are supposed to adjudicate a law passed by somebody else, become a law to themselves, so they become a little, a little, uh, what, uh, a little dictator. <laughs> They're the ones who get to say, and because of their power as a judge, they can then declare. And they, the people are doing this... Th- 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 all over the place. Wasn't there a judge just recently who said, "Here's a guy, you did something bad. I don't agree with it. I forbid you to run for office." How can a judge do that? There are all kinds of things judges do like that. Well, because they're their own law; they're not beholden to anyone. And so, if you're a Christian, you can't do that because that undermines the the rule of law, which protects everybody. But wait a minute, what if the law is an immoral law? Then you recuse yourself. That is, you don't live by lies. You step back, you step down. You don't, re- you, 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 you don't do the wrong thing by promoting the law that is immoral, but you don't do the other wrong thing by inserting your own mo- morality in there, even if it's a, a sound. It's not your job to do that you step back and recuse. You say, I'm not in. And then if, if, if there are negative consequences to you refusing to, to enforce an immoral law, then, then you have to live with those consequences. Uh, that's what it costs us to do what's right before God. And incidentally, I've mentioned this book a number of times And maybe later December or January. I'll finally have the author on after I get this past this really tight bottleneck that I'm facing this next couple of months. Rod Dreher, and we'll talk about his book, Live Not By Lies. But the last portion of the book, maybe a quarter, is talking about how those who choose not to live by lies, a line from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Christian dissident, in the former Soviet Union spent 10 years in the gulag. To live to choose not to live by lies is going to cost you. Because we live before God. Our audience of one. We don't seek to appease the immoral mob. We don't wishing to please the mob, like Mark 15 15 and Pilate, wishing to please the crowd is the way it's translated there, which in that case was a mob. He delivered Barabbas to them it freed Barabbas and had Jesus scourged and crucified." Okay, that's not us. We don't live by that ethic. Mob rule. We do what's right, but it may cost us. So anyway, I, I, I left. It took me 20 minutes to tell you my last f- five minutes final words with that group, but it was so satisfying in my soul to be able to talk to these good people and see their rapt attention because they were committed people it was just obvious to me and were were committed to their craft it doesn't mean they're all going to work pro bono for you know some christian legal organization and you know help christians i hope so. all of them do some of that they have their own careers they're going to pursue but they, they 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 need to pursue it of course given the realities of the world god made and faithful to God's commands. And in doing so, they are going to make a difference for good and for the kingdom in the world. And I wanted them to feel the gravity of that responsibility on their shoulders and go out with a commission. And that's the way I ended my my session. Anyway, so I 30 minutes here into the show. Time for a break, uh, and we have calls coming up. Greg Kokel here for Standard reason Stay with us. What if I'm wrong? Have
1: you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith. Because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com.
2: As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. My friends. Greg Kokel
0: back with you here, giving you a piece of my mind, as they do on Tuesdays from 4 until 6 p.m. That's the call in time at 855-243-9975. If you're outside the U.S., you can dial up 562. This is our local area code here in the Long Beach area. Uh, 424-8229. All right. And we have Will in Mississippi. Uh, Let me get the right button here. Oh uh, yeah, there we go. Hey, Will, welcome to the show.
3: Uh, thank you, Mister Greg. Uh, I appreciate you taking my call.
0: Glad to do so, Will.
3: Uh, just first off, I just wanted to thank you for uh, your work and, and y'all's ministry there. Um, I really enjoyed your book, Tactics, uh, oh, and gave uh, copies to my family huh. uh, several years ago. And uh, look, look forward to your to your next work.
0: Good. Thank you. It's called Street Smarts. At least that's the working title, and I have the concept built all through the text for all the, what, 18 chapters. And uh, so I think is going to be stuck with that title. So, uh, uh-huh. But I think it's sticky. I think it's easy to remember, and that's really important for a book title. Yes, so sir. I agree. Enjoy It'll be coming out in June sometime, the way it looks right now. Okay, good. Okay, well. Uh,
3: so I I've <laughs> had a question for you about um, justice for um i guess all people after death just as a quick background i've been in law enforcement for almost 15 years <clears throat> um and uh in various ways so i kind of have that you know that that mental bent towards uh justice so good for you uh just from my own experience and just seeing reality um a lot of, there's a lot of people m- maybe not most i guess it depends on the the type of government that you live under but a significant number of people end up basically getting away with the crimes that they commit right on while you know here on this earth
0: mm-hmm. um,
3: and not just crimes against that break the laws of their of their nation or state that, mm-hmm. but just that break God's laws so I was wondering what your opinion was on uh, what happens to people? in when they go when they actually go to hell or mm-hmm. heaven. Um I'm I'm a Southern Baptist is my denomination. I'm not Catholic and mm-hmm. so I don't necessarily believe in purgatory or um like the punishments that Dante yeah. talked about yeah. in hell. But it seems like with that being the case that that a lot of people get away with what they do here on earth. Mm-hmm and God prescribes certain punishments for people on earth that for those crimes, um, it seemed, and if people are in in hell for eternity, it seems like there'll be a little bit of an imbalance. Like, so somebody that went to hell at the beginning of time gets more punishment than people, somebody that goes to hell, you know, thousands and thousands of years later.
0: Yeah. Right.
3: But, and then the other side of that coin is there's, christians that go that are saved but you know committed crimes on on while they're on earth when we could say well jesus paid for those sins but well if that's the case then but we still even when people are christians we still punish them with the law that's right. on earth <laughs>
0: Okay, let me. This is a, this is great questions, and I'm glad you're asking them because hopefully this will help you and others who're thinking about it as well in this broader issue of justice. Uh, I was thinking as you're talking about when George Bush, um, the younger, <laughs> I don't know the middle name, so there's George Herbert, and there's George whatever, but the younger uh, was governor of um, of Texas. He was facing a a circumstance where a woman had committed a brutal crime, but in prison had become a capital crime. It was a murder and uh, a stabbing murder, as I recall, and became a Christian in prison and then was appealing for pardon based on her change of conviction. And uh, here's what George Bush said. He said, God has his court and I have mine. Now I actually think that's good theology. God has has delegated a certain authority to punish evildoers to civil government, and this woman, in virtue of her crime, before man's court, based on God's design, was to experience punishment by man for the crime she committed. But if for a man sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Where in the image of God, God created man. And that's Genesis 9.6. It's the first mention of capital punishment, and it's tied to the integrity of, of, of being human. We're made in the image of God, and therefore if you take the life of an image-bearer, you surrender your own life. That's the kind of calculus there, okay? But that's what courts, human courts, are supposed to do. Now, in God's court, is murder forgivable? Of course it is. And presuming taking this woman at her word... If she is a, uh, has made peace with God and benefited from the, the, the uh, sacrifice of Christ to pay her debt with God for that murder, then she is forgiven in God's court. And when human courts exer- execute judgment by executing her, she will then go in God's presence in virtue of the mercy that God provides in His court through Christ. Okay, this is just to say there are two separate courts, and I. Th- so George Bush's observation, I think, it was a really good one. It was a, it, it, he was keeping these realms properly distinct. All right. Now, of course, there are people in this life who don't get human justice. They still will get justice ultimately, and uh, this was an argument that C.S. Lewis used. Um, and it's it's basically if 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 justice seems due, yet it's not done in this life, then it's likely to be done at another time. And uh, I think there's merit to that. It needs to be kind of cashed out a little bit more thoroughly. But uh, I actually talk about this when I, I talk in a chapter in the book "Story of Reality," and it's called "Perfect Justice." okay? And this is one of the ends for human beings. One of two ends, actually, either perfect justice or perfect mercy. That's it, one or the other. And perfect justice is punishment for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. Of course, perfect mercy is forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. But the, but the, um, uh, the, the forgiveness and mercy is made possible and you already know this, so I'm just going over basics on this, because Jesus paid that price already, so we don't have to pay. The the simple calculus is either Jesus pays or we pay. If Jesus pays, he's the God-man, he can do it in three hours. You know, if we pay, for us, it takes forever. And uh, now, the question, the other little wrinkle to your question is um, so, what I've said so far is that there are two courts and they have different responsibilities, and you can have forgiveness in God's court even though you don't get forgiveness in man's court. Okay. Um, And uh, ultimately, the forgiveness in God's court is made possible because of what Jesus did. All right. And um, that for those who do not benefit from what Jesus did, they pay themselves. However, different people have different rap sheets. Some people, short rap sheet, some really, really long, all right? Right. Now, that makes common sense, and it comports with our intuitions about the nature of justice, people getting their due, and for some the due is different than others, and it's actually very consistent with what Jesus Teaches, the scriptures teach, and Jesus mentions it a number of times. He says, for example, to Bethsaida and Chorazin, these are towns in the Galilee where he personally preached and people rejected him. And he said, Woe upon you, because the judgment upon you will be greater than the judgment on those from Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah are pretty bad, right? But Sodom and Gomorrah did not have God. Incarnate walking among them, doing miracles, demonstrating his authority as God, incarnate, and then was still rejected. that is a higher level of revelation if you will makes does that make sense to you? Yes sir and I think this is the reason that Jesus said it's going to be worse for you in the day of judgment because you got more revelation essentially, okay then at his trial, Jesus said to Pilate, he said, the one who delivered you over to me has the greater sin. Okay, so greater sin naturally implies greater punishment, just like in our legal system, you have misdemeanors. And you have felonies, for example, and uh, so you have lesser punishments for lesser sins, like misdemeanors. Or in the state of California, you have no punishment for misdemeanors. That's not a joke; it's a fact. Oh uh, yes, sir. You know know, this is why Walgreens are closing down because people come in and rob them. Rob them. They as long as they take only what a thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars at a time, that's a misdemeanor, and they're not going to get prosecuted. But anyway, in any event, that's but that just the idea of of greater and lesser crimes is consistent even our own legal system and consequently even though everyone has a punishment of banishment from god forever hell is a place of banishment this is in second thessalonians chapter 1 away from the presence of the lord forever uh, even though everyone has that all right. Um, there is going. There's still it, the experience of the banishment isn't the same for everybody. There is going to be greater punishment and lesser punishment. The duration is the same forever. And by the way, when you're looking at forever, it doesn't matter if you started today or two thousand or eight thousand or fifty thousand years ago. <laughs> forever, is still forever. It never ends. All right. So I don't. I don't think there's any, any meaningful inequity there um okay. but uh but the but the quality is going to be different. Some are going to receive greater punishments, and it does seem biblically that greater punishment has to do with greater revelation, because the person who ultimately handed over um Jesus to Pilate would either be Judas, who was discipled by Jesus for almost three years. Or the high priest, who also had a pretty good picture of Jesus and revelation, etc. They are both in a position of 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 um, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it of of extreme revelation by God, and they bo- both rebelled against that, and and were partisan to Jesus' execution. So this is bad for them. So we kind of joke a little bit. There's a there's a deep place in hell for that person. Well, in a certain sense, there's truth to that. And uh, though it's hard for us, I think, well, to make sense of it, like, okay, hell is pretty bad. Like, how could it be more bad for some people than others? Well, it is. It's the duration is the same, but the experience is not going to be the same. But for anybody there, it's going to be bad. You don't want to go there. You don't want to say, well, I'm I'm like in like the higher levels of hell, not the deep place of hell. Well, you don't want to be anywhere there, because it's going to be just punishment forever by a just God for our sins against him. We want to be rescued from that, and that's the importance of Jesus. I don't know if I've covered the bases there, but does that make sense to you?
3: Yes, sir, it does. I appreciate it.
0: All right. So everybody won't receive the same punishment in terms of intensity, if if that's the right word, but they will receive the same punishment in terms of duration, and it will be commensurate with their crimes against God. No one will get away with murder, as it's often put. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, good talking to you, buddy. Yes, sir. You too. uh, Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Now, let's go to uh, Bradford in North Carolina. And do, do you go by Bradford, Bradford, or do you go by Brad or Bradley or B-Man yes. or what?
4: Yes, I go by Bradford, so it's okay, uh, Bradford. A long name. Yes. How are you doing tonight, Greg? Okay,
0: I'm doing fine. Nice to chat with you.
4: Yeah, I was wanting to see if you could, could tell me, kind of go elaborate on the passage in 1 Kings where the prophet is confronting Jeroboam in the first nine verses and he does a good job and then he comes to verse 11 and there's the old prophet who lived in bethel who then subsequently gives him the wrong advice and i was wondering about this old prophet if if this old prophet would be the i guess the equivalent modern equivalent of like a fallen pastor was this a prophet who was at one time faithful Giving the right message, but then had been subsequently influenced by the culture around them and compromised the message to the point that he was now giving the wrong message, or was this just a false prophet? You know, and uh, there's a lot uh, wrong. Right. I, I'm, I I,
0: I'm scanning over. I'm scanning over the material now, and um, I, I kind of remember this. Is this? Uh, let's see, the. the uh, was there a? Is this a situation when um, there was a, a a reward offered to the the one prophet? The prophet said, "No, I'm not going to take that." And he goes with his his. No, it's not that one. Amy's shaking, waving me off. Okay, I I, I haven't read the passage here, um, so I'm not entirely sure how best to answer it here. Let me just read your from verse eleven. Yeah, now, an old it, prophet it. was living in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel." Okay, so we know the first one, the man of God, is a man of God, okay? Whether a person is a good prophet or bad prophet is always a question during this period of time, so we'll keep reading. Um, uh, The father said to them, which way did he go? Now his sons had seen the way which the man of God, who came from Judah, had gone. He said to his son, "'Settle a donkey for me.' So they settled a donkey for him and rode on it, and they went after the men of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said, "'Are you the men of God who came from Judah?' I am." He said, "'Come home with me and eat bread.' He said, "'I cannot return with you, or nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, you shall eat no bread, nor drink no water, etc.' He said to him, Well, I'm a prophet too, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back. And then, but he lied to him. Okay, I see where this is going. So he went back with him and ate the bread in the house. And then, then uh, came about when they're sitting down at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had. Brought him back, and and he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, "Thus says the Lord: Because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord, and you have not ob- observed the command which the Lord you gave you, then judgment comes." Okay, now I remember this one. This is a tricky situation because you have one circumstance where the old prophet, who uh, I'm 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 just going to make the distinction here, which seems to be obvious: the man of God, first prophet, and the old prophet is not a man of God. Okay, because he deceives. Okay? He tells a lie. That's what the text says. And then he, he gets the man of God, who had been given one message by God, to disobey that message because the old prophet has a new message. And then God speaks to the old, old prophet legitimately. He actually speaks to him, prophesied, bad prophet, bad man of God, naughty, naughty, you should have listened in the first place. So you got this weird situation All right? And um, here's my take on it. Um, I think that the man of God um, who made the mistake of listening to a lying prophet should have paid attention to the particular things that God himself told him to do. Now, you can kind of sympathize with this poor prophet, the, the, the man of God prophet, We'll call him the good prophet and the bad prophet, okay, for the sake of clarity. You can kind of sympathize with the good prophet, because the good prophet was obeying God, and even when he's tempted, he decides to stick with what he knows God had told him. Then he gets a lying prophet, bad prophet, and says, no, God changed his mind. Well, you know, is it possible for God to say, okay, I'm going to do something different this time or whatever? Yeah, that happens, but I don't know why the good prophet should have believed What the bad prophet said. It seems to me it was smart. Would have been smarter for the good prophet to follow his own marching orders originally given, and that's safety in that. And it seems to me also that since the good prophet was a man of God, that if God wanted to change his mind, which by the way has happened, remember Hezekiah was going to die, and Hezekiah um, prayed to. Well, Hezekiah was told by. Isaiah, I think, or maybe, yeah, I think Isaiah, you're going to die. And he, and he was a good man, he's a good king, and he and as, as the prophet is going out, he's praying to God, weeping and asking for mercy, and then God tells the prophet, go back and tell him I heard your prayer, and you're going to live another 15 years or something like that. So God can do that. But in this particular case, it wasn't God speaking to the original prophet. It was God speaking through somebody else. And I think maybe the original prophet could have said, you know, if this is what God really wanted of me, why didn't He tell me? Why did He tell you? that makes sense to you?
4: It, yeah, it does. And, and doesn't this go along with what you've written about the private messages from God? This is the pa- classic passage that I've got my own... Uh, God spoke to me and told me this. Yeah, <laughs> like you've, well... It, I, isn't this an example of what you write about in, in and on that topic? Yes, too? it
0: does have application to that, because when somebody Um, tells me, has told me in the past, okay, and this has happened a number of times, back when, many years ago, a quarter of a century ago now, when I was single, I'd have uh, appeals made to me as a single person by women who were convinced that God had told them that I was the guy for them. That was who God had chosen for them. It happened a number of times, okay? And, uh, My response was, well, why didn't God tell me? Why did he tell you and not me? And so I think something like that is going on here, that uh, the prophet, the good prophet, could have said, wait a minute, you say God told you something opposite than what God told me? Why, if God was going to change his mind, why wouldn't God tell me about that, like in the case of Hezekiah? But he, anyway, he got hoodwinked, all right, and he went and did what was wrong, and then God really did speak through bad prophet, chastising good prophet, saying you shouldn't have followed bad prophet the first time around. Crazy, I realize, but he should have trusted what the Lord told him the first time. Hey, good question, though, Bradford from North Carolina. I'm glad I got a chance to address that issue. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, okay, friends. Bye, bye.